This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the future of the Republican Party. And there is certainly a lot to talk about. Since losing the presidency and its Senate majority late last year, the GOP has been undergoing a very public reckoning. And depending on where you sit on the political spectrum, that reckoning can look very different. Is this a party in freefall doomed to shatter once it hits bottom? Or is it a party still in the early stages of a painful but necessary transformation? Of course, if you believe the lie that the 2020 election was rigged, you might view the party as an embattled one, in need of no repair and due for a comeback. I have to warn you, though, if that's the way you think about the Republican Party, you probably aren't going to enjoy this conversation very much. Ross Douthat and Henry Olson are both bone-deep conservatives, but they are not believers in the so-called big lie. In their regular columns, Douthat in the New York Times and Olson in the Washington Post, both men have been openly tangling with the fate of the GOP and neither has been fueling beliefs in a grand conspiracy against their preferred political party. But neither are they convinced that the big lie is the threat that many others think it is. Within this conversation, which is expertly led by Crosscut's own Monica Guzman, you will hear two very smart minds deftly navigating a political landscape. In other words, this isn't a conversation about values, but about a kind of brutal reality. To them, believing the lie just doesn't make sense for the future of the party, but neither does pushing back on it at all costs. That may sound cynical, and it is. This is politics. But I also found this conversation incredibly helpful in clarifying for how we might think about the future of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and our country entirely. One note for the purposes of this podcast, this conversation was part of the Crosscut Festival, which took place in early May. That means that a couple topics of conversation here are out of date, even if they're still very relevant. In particular, the fate of Liz Cheney was still hanging in the balance. Soon after this conversation, the representative from Wyoming was removed from her leadership position. Also, since this conversation, Donald Trump has announced that he will be restarting his rallies sometime in the next month. All right, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. started there's obviously a lot of ground to cover uh with the republican party and politics right now it's quite the moment uh first things first just to check uh henry then ross are you still registered republicans yeah virginia doesn't have party registration uh which is where i live so i'm not a registered republican but i still consider myself a republican i'd rather try and save the party i've supported for 45 years than lead it I'll, I'll offer the opposite answer. I think that I am a registered Republican um, in the city of New Haven, Connecticut, where the Republican primary is obviously the central battle <laughs> for, for political power. Um, that's a joke for anyone who doesn't know New Haven politics intimately. I tend not to, I tend to identify more as a sort of conservative 
of some sort than as a Republican per se. Um, but I think Henry and I are basically in the same place of regarding the GOP as the only plausible vehicle for conservative politics in the U.S., for better or worse. Gotcha. So let's talk about what the Republican Party stands for right now. And I want to try something a little different. Henry, I'd like you to give us your most generous interpretation of where the party is right now. And then, Ross, give us your least generous. So, Henry, kick us off. I think the generous interpretation is that the party is uh, is finding its way. Is that uh, I think there is an undeniable political fact that the people who are open to voting, most open to voting for a center-right party these days, have different priorities than those who are open to voting for a center-right party in 2004, 2008. And that's a fact the Republican Party has yet to adjust to. If it adjusts to it properly, it can become a majority party. If it adjusts to them improperly, it can become and remain an irrelevant minority for quite some time. So I, I agree with that. Um, one of the nice things about uh, just having Henry and I together is that we have, a, I think, a broadly similar take on the this sort of issue of the GOP and the working class. We both think that the party is going through this kind of transition and that it has to go through this kind of transition in order to be successful in the future. It has to figure out what being a sort of populist and working class party means. Mm -hmm. So agreeing with that generous interpretation, then I'll offer the less generous interpretation, which is that the Republican Party is hostage to the paranoia and conspiracy theories of Donald J. Trump. Um, and Trump basically show in a certain way showed the party the opening that it had. He showed the possibility for sort of breaking out of some of the party's sterile orthodoxies that defined its campaigns in 2008 and 2012. Um, but then having showed that path um, in some of the failures of his presidency, and then especially in the way he ended it, he basically tried to slam the door on the future. And instead of saying, okay, I showed a way to be a populist conservative. Now go learn from this and broaden the coalition. He basically insisted, no, I won. I won by a landslide. In order to be a good Republican, you have to agree that I won. And a party that thinks that it won an election that it actually lost, whether or not it's a danger to democracy itself, which is sort of the, the big picture debate, is certainly a danger to itself and is certainly unlikely to be in a position to actually capture a majority in the near future. So that would be the that would be the more pessimistic take, I would say. Well, staying with you, Ross, and, and a bit of a segue from that point, what then is something you're grateful emerged in the Republican Party over the last four years? You talked about Trump sort of showing an opening. Uh, so what are the seeds that were planted that you see that you want to grow? Uh, and what are the ones <laughs> that should be pulled out of the ground? I mean, I think what Trump did, Trump came into the party and was not a Republican, was certainly not a conservative, um, had no attachment to the sort of long arc of Reagan era conservatism um, and a lot of the sort of the orthodoxies that had developed in the party over that time. And that meant that he could come in and say things that lots of Republicans were afraid to say, like the war in Iraq was a mistake. And we need to recalibrate our approach to the Middle East. Now he wouldn't he wouldn't put it in you know, he wouldn't use the word recalibrate, probably, but you know, sort of envision a shift in foreign policy that the Republicans he ran against in 2016 were not, to put it mildly, envisioning. And similarly on domestic policy, I think Trump coming in and basically saying, 
you know, the Republican fixation on deficits and entitlement reform in 2008 and 2012 was a mistake. And the party should be focused on full employment and working class wages, whether or not he followed through on those ideas successfully, I think was a necessary and important shift for the Republican Party that I think has influenced some of the people who want to lead the party after Trump. Again, the question is whether there will be an after Trump on any immediate time horizon. Mm-hmm. So to to flip this to you, Henry, we just brought up Reagan, um, comes up a lot in discussions about the Republican Party, of course. He once famously quipped, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. Uh, so what do you think Republicans know right now that Democrats, Democrats don't and should? Yeah, I think that Democrats remain massively overconfident. They remain overconfidence based on polling data when we've seen plenty of examples of presidencies that start well in theory and end poorly. In fact, David Shore, the very influential progressive analyst, came out with an analysis about a week ago that said that Joe Biden is in uh, perhaps the weakest, one of the weakest positions of any incumbent president for decades, and that based on historical data going back to 1942, the Democrats should expect in an average year to get 48% of the vote, which would cost them 20 House seats and control of the Senate. And that's a progressive analyst looking at the data. You will hear almost none of that in uh, Democrat circles. They are all talking about transformation and FDR uh, and completely blind way in which the politics on the ground is simply not reflecting that. They are hoping against hope that Donald Trump continues to be front and center and Donald Trump continues to give them that opportunity. But we shouldn't assume people will still think this way a year and a half from now, uh, depending on what's happening in the country. And Democrats should be very more aware of the precariousness of their majority rather than thinking that Donald Trump's narrow rejection is a sign that they can thoroughly remake America and turn America blue again. Mm. So crossing the aisle, uh, or, or rather staying on the Democrat side, I, I think for a bit, Ross, have the Democrats then learned anything or stolen any tricks from Trump? I mean, has has politics on both sides of the aisle transformed for the better in any way? I mean, I, I disagree a little with Henry. I, I think Democrats are pretty aware of the precarity of their congressional majorities, at least. And I think some of the emphasis on Biden going big and, you know, spending as much money as possible. And then beyond that, ideas that probably aren't going to come to fruition, like statehood for Puerto Rico or D.C. or packing the Supreme Court. I think those ideas reflect the Democratic sense, not of overconfidence, but of of fear, right? Fear that politics is going to snap back, back pretty quickly. So I think there's at least some of that on the Democratic side of the aisle. I think if you look at the Biden administration itself, they they have learned something from the Trump era. Um, you see it in foreign policy, where Biden is at least officially doing the thing that Trump was unable to get the national security bureaucracy to do and pull troops out of Afghanistan. There's been a real recalibration of U.S. foreign policy towards China that Trump started and Biden has picked up on. And then Biden is doing things around trade um, and other, you know, sort of industrial policy where he's basically keeping some things that Trump did in place. He's got a new Buy American, you know, sort of conception. He's got, um, he's trying to do the infrastructure bill that, again, Trump ran on in 2016 and never delivered. So I think Biden looks at the landscape and says, Trump showed that after years of globalization, after the Iraq war, 
you know, there is this sort of political opportunity for a leader who can say, we're rebuilding the U.S. Um, and reorienting its foreign policy. Trump tried to do it. Biden's trying to do it. And I, I think overall, that's probably a good thing. I think the weakness for the Democrats is not so much on those issues. It's on the issues that divide their base internally, whether it is immigration, where the Biden administration is struggling to get a handle on um, the rising number of border crossers, crime, where crime rates went up a lot in the last year, even as left-wing activists were making sort of abolish and defund the police a slogan. It's those kind of issues of sort of social breakdown and certain kinds of culture war that divide the Democrats internally. They're trying not to talk about them at the national level. Biden sort of tries to rise above those issues. It works until it doesn't, basically. Um, and local issues have a way of becoming national issues in a hurry. And I, I think that's the biggest danger for, for the Democrats. If crime continues to rise for two more years once the pandemic is over, that's a big problem for Democrats, for instance. Mm. So, yeah, so would, Henry, yeah, go ahead and respond to that if you'd like. No, actually, I would agree with a lot of that. I gave Biden a C minus when I was asked to grade his first 100 days, largely on the analysis that Ross has. My thinking, projecting is that um, he wants to marry those insights about Trump to a party that is largely progressive on culture and wants a degree of spending uh, and influx of money into the economy that is unwarranted by the pandemic. And he's gambling that that can work. I don't think it will. And that's why I tend to think that there is a Republican opportunity in the midterms that, um, you know, and I, I operate on election Twitter a lot, and a lot of you know, anybody who says this on election Twitter just gets knocked down, knocked down, knocked down. We're stupid. We're partisan. We're you know, blah blah blah. And the sober minds understand that, but I don't think the sober minds dominate the thinking right now. Hmm. This might be a good time then to bring up uh, the big lie. So, Ross, the big lie. It's uh, what Democrats call the idea that the election was stolen. This week, unsurprisingly, Trump is trying to flip that around, claiming that the, quote, fraudulent presidential election of 2020 is the real big lie. Um, so where where is all this headed, this contentiousness over the election results? Um, so I'll go to Ross and then Henry. I mean, I think it depends on ultimately on whether Trump really wants to run for president again, right? I mean, in, in the short term, you have the figure of Liz Cheney, mm -hmm. who has, for reasons that I'm not sure were actually strategic, decided to mm -hmm. sort of continue picking a public fight on these issues. And I, I obviously, I agree with her um, on the merits. I'm less sure that it makes sense for someone who has her views and her position of power to sort of cede that position of power right now, mm -hmm. um, given that at the moment, Trump isn't running for president and nothing direct is at stake. But that's- Do you think that she knows that? That she knows that that's where this is headed? If she, you know, keeps beating this drum, she's- Yeah, like I mean, I, I think she's a, she's a smart politician. I think she understands, yes, that, yeah. she, that in making these choices, she's likely to lose her leadership position um, and, you know, possibly her seat, although that, that may be somewhat less likely. And- yeah, I, I'm, I mean, again, she's, you know, there's a, a, a case that you have to stand on principle in this case. I think for her, she took the stand on principle. She cast the critical votes to impeach Trump. It's not clear that fighting, continuing to fight it now, you know, anyway, but I mean, to, to leap forward though, right? Like if Trump doesn't run in 2024, 
I think the narrative about 2020 sort of gets subsumed back into the older Republican narrative that, you know, voter fraud was a problem, but not, you know, not one that was, you know, something they would use to claim that they won, you know, that they won an election that they'd actually very, very clearly lost. Mm -hmm. um, I think if Trump does run, you know, obviously, if he runs, gets the nomination, loses narrowly again, we've seen, <laughs> we've seen the play once, we, we mm -hmm. know what he'll do again. And, and again, if people like Liz Cheney have sort of, been purged or self-purged, the party will have a harder time managing him the way I think most Republican elites actually did manage Trump in this case. Um, but it's also a, just a question for the Republican primary. And that, that's sort of the more, I think, the more urgent case. If you are imagining Trump running and yourself running against him, as at least some Republican politicians probably do imagine right now, you have to figure out what you're going to say when Trump basically says, I am legitimately the president of the United States. Why are you running in a primary against me? I won the last election fair and square. That, I think, is the place where this, you know, really, again, if Trump runs, cashes out in a, in a way that puts a lot of, puts any Republican running against him in a real bind. Is that the key point for you, Henry, as well, whether or not Trump wins? I mean, Trump runs. Yeah, I, I've got a couple of things. First of all, I just want to make it clear. I opposed the fraud theory within a week of the election, within like five days, wrote a column saying this was bunk. I continue to support that. I called for Trump's impeachment in the second instance after January 6th. And I continue to be upset that people in the Republican Party won't take on the big lie. I think essentially, because Trump won't let it go, what the Republican Party's thought was we can manage the outcome if we give Trump, if we don't criticize Trump publicly and we just keep people in line. They were right substantively. There was no decertification of election results. There was no legislative overturning the popular vote in 2020. They were wrong politically. And I think what they're going to have to do over the next year is actually respond. Donald Trump has no substantive evidence, but the fact that he has no substantive evidence has never been refuted by people who people in the Republican Party might trust. That has to end. I think the key element for Donald Trump's political future is the primary challenges that he is going to enthusiastically back to what he considers to be heretical Republicans in 2022. Mm -hmm. He's the sitting leader of the Republican Party taking on heretics in the party. He has to win nearly all of those challenges. If he only wins half of them, people will see that they can stand up to the bully in the room. So I'm not thinking about 2024 right now. I'm thinking about the summer of 2022 when Donald Trump intentionally goes after his critics. And if he doesn't, you know, it's like they say, used to say, if you're going to try and kill the king, kill the king. Mm -hmm. It's the reverse here. He has to quash his enemies, almost all of them. And if he doesn't, then you'll start to see his leadership of the Republican Party fade. And you'll probably see him start conducting more self-inflicted wounds as he behaves more radically to maintain his declining influence. But that's a year and a half away. I don't know what Republican voters will decide between May and September of 2022. Hmm. So to both of you, what do you hope to see happen with Liz Cheney, maybe as soon as, you know, coming up? And, and what do you think will happen? And is there a difference? My basic take is the one that I that I sort of gestured gestured at before, right? I expect Liz Cheney to lose her leadership position. Um, 
I, you know, in an ideal world, obviously, I would prefer not to have. Well, I, I think there are ways in which Liz Cheney, independent of Trump, is not an ideal leader for the Republican caucus right now. Um, and I think Henry can maybe speak to that more. But I don't think it's good for Republican leaders to lose their positions over fights with Trump over the election. I think it's a very bad sign for the party. Finally, though, I do. I wish that Liz Cheney had found a way not to continue picking these fights. I think in the sense that I think if you are, again, concerned about Republicans doing the right thing in the event that you get some future, you know, sort of political meltdown involving Trump claiming fraud again in 2024, you want people in positions of power who you know will stand up to him. And Cheney proved that she would. And I, yeah, I, I kind of wish she had kept her head down in the last month rather than fighting this out. Making it untenable. And Henry, yes, I know one, I know one of your columns was about how the real misalignment is that she just doesn't match up ideologically with the party as it is now. Maybe the attention is not on policy in this fight. So um, tell us more about that. Yeah, but you see, I disagree with that, is that fundamentally you have to understand that the people who supported uh, Cheney back in the first challenge are the people who are generally conservative but would like to get by the Trump issue. And what Cheney's done in the last month is basically to tell those people that she doesn't agree with them, is that if you have concerns about getting rid of out of Afghanistan, she's basically said that's not a Republican position. One of the key things that's not getting reported outside of Washington is when the head of the Republican Study Commission uh, Committee, uh, which is basically the, the sub-caucus that includes like 70% of the people, said uh, that he, the Republican Party is a working class party and should work to maintain that. And she called that a neo-Marxist idea. And so when you take on the head of the largest group whose members are the people who saved your behind three months ago, and say that you're a neo-Marxist, you're basically saying you have no respect for the people who saved your lives. That's why she's in trouble now. They were willing to deal with the Trump stuff, and she shouldn't be poking Trump in the eye. But what she's doing is picking unnecessary fights with people who were her allies, who now have decided, I don't want this anymore. I don't want it. I don't want to have to deal with Trump every day. And I don't want her in a leadership position telling me that I'm wrong about the future of the party. And so I th regretfully think she needs to go. Um, and my piece today was saying that Elise Stefanik may be the right choice because if she, if she does become the next number three, she'll not only be the only woman, she'll be the only millennial in leadership. And crucially, she'll be the only person who represents an Obama Trump district, a district that is represents and is populated by the people who are working class voters who supported the Democrats in the 60s, 70s, in the, in the 90s and the aughts and the early 10s, and now are Trump voters. She's the only voice that will be in the leadership council. And if she brings that insight, that could help bring the party together rather than drive it apart. But it's all down to who she is and what she actually is willing to do. Hmm. So switching back over uh, to, you mentioned dealing with Trump every day. So from the desk of Donald J. Trump uh, this week, that's the former president's new media feed uh, tied to what he's calling Save America and the America First movement. Uh, what does it all amount to, uh, to you, Ross, uh, to, to start us off? What, what does Trump really mean right now to the Republican Party? God knows. I, I mean, it's, it's a, we're running a, just a really fascinating media experiment where you have a candidate who was sort of built by a combination of online media and his cable news presence 
Um, he has been banned, purged, whatever you want to call it, from the most important online media platforms. And once that happened, cable news coverage of him, which I think we sort of established now, was sort of linked to the way he used social media, right? There was some kind of interplay between his tweets and CNN's desire to cover them, right? That interplay is broken. Um, and that has weakened him, I think, maybe maybe a little more than um, I would have expected a, mm. few, a, few, a few months ago. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it has, you can see it in sort of, you know, there was a moment uh, a couple of weeks ago where Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, temporarily pulled ahead of Trump on predicted and mm. betting shares for the 2024 nomination. I would not have expected that to happen right, you know, in the first few months, at least. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, it's just one small, small indicator. But I think it's I think it's a, a useful signifier that Trump has been weakened by the change in his media environment. And so I think the core question, and this goes to Henry's point about the midterms, right, is what does he do during the midterms? You know, just having just having an internet presence isn't enough. He has to inject himself more fully, and he can do that, right? Like if he wants to go on Fox and you know be on be on Hannity or Tucker Carlson or call into Fox and Friends, like he can he can do that. So he can inject himself more, at least into the conservative portion of the of the media stream, and he can go back to holding rallies. And at some point, he'll do that, and we'll see what effect that has. But but basically, he's taken a hit. His influence has taken a hit. I don't think this platform is what gets it back. I think he has to go into Fox, into, you know, he has to hold rallies. He has to sort of inject himself more fully than just sort of building something that's that's like an island unto itself. I don't think that, I don't think Trump Island works on the on his list of properties. <laughs> right. Henry, what do, you, what do you think on that? Agree, disagree? Um, I think Trump is both, the single most important figure in the Republican Party and his influence is fading. There was a poll from the Wall Street Journal, uh, the monthly Wall Street Journal NBC News poll came out that for the first time in years said when you ask people, Republicans, are you more of a supporter of Donald Trump or more of a supporter of the Republican Party? More people said they were a supporter of the Republican Party than Donald Trump. Before the election, it would have been two to one in favor of Trump. Now it's a slim majority in favor of the party. And I think that's an indication that out of sight, out of mind, and an indication of people who might say, I like some of the things Donald Trump brought to bear, but it's time to move him along. There are still millions of people who worship him in uh, the ground that walk on. And what we'll see in 2022 is a battle between these various groups of people in all these different primaries, which is why I think we don't know the answer yet. It's so long in advance. And I'm just reminded of the 1992 election when Ross Perot got 18% of the vote and people thought he was really powerful. And by September, he was a has-been because he blew up in a debate that he was expected to win on NAFTA with Vice President Al Gore. Um, there's a lot of time for Donald Trump to lose influence. And it's hard to see what he does to gain it. He's already in a position. I think time is not his friend here. But one... People have been waiting for Donald Trump to like naturally fade and lose influence for a long time. I wrote a lot of columns making a version of Henry's point back in 2016 that we're all wrong. And what Trump has going for him is that he can lose a certain amount of influence and still be a dominant player in a like if he in a Republican field in 2024, if it's divided 
And he so if he comes in, he's down to 30 percent of the vote, 35 percent of the vote. That's all he had in 2016. And with the right mix of people competing against him, he can still come back and win. That's why something like DeSantis is such an interesting figure. If basically sort of the Republican establishment, such as it is, wants to defeat Trump in 2024 without having to like, you know, almost sort of take him on from six directions at once, I think they need their their candidate early. And maybe it's not DeSantis, but DeSantis is a, you know, he's a guy who sort of fits, fits that bill. Mm. So speaking about, uh, yeah, this is actually an excellent segue to, to local state regional level GOP. Uh, Republicans who insist there was nothing wrong with the election are, are censure and on the local and state level. Here in Washington, the Republican candidate for governor, Lauren Culp, never actually conceded the race to Jay Inslee. Is this the new normal? Um, in the GOP, this approach uh, on 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 that level to elections all over the place. I, yes, I mean I think it's most likely to be the new normal in in states where the Republican Party is is weak um, in certain ways that you have there sort of there you get sort of purely virals as party when parties are weak and and they and they shrink. Um, I think that where the Republicans should be most worried about it is in places where they were winning and just started losing like Arizona. Mm-hmm. So it's much it's much more of a problem for Republicans in, you know, if you have a state that's sort of in the balance and it starts to tip to Democrats and you get this spiral of um, sort of denialism and craziness, then the next thing you know, you can end up where Virginia ended up, where the Republican Party in Virginia, you know, sort of becomes captive to its own um its own extremism and you go from being a Republican state in two, you know, 20 years ago to a competitive state 10 years ago to a safe democratic state. And if that happens in places like, like Arizona, then the, then the Republicans are, are in trouble. Um, but it's not good. It's not a good trend. Henry, let's see if we can get your thoughts real quick on that. Yeah, I, I think it's a minority trend, you know, is that you, are, you don't have people who were backed by the National Party in serious races saying, I lost. You know, Stacey Abrams is one of those people who still hasn't conceded as a Democrat that she is not the governor of Georgia. You know, somebody like a Lauren Culp, uh, nobody expected her to win. She didn't come very close. You know, fringe figures or people who don't have serious futures will tend to do fringy things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a disturbing trend. It's, it's way, the belief in the election fraud myth is way too widespread within the Republican Party, which is why, again, I think that responsible Republican leaders have tried not to engage the president. It hasn't worked. And I think they're going to need to do so in a detailed way as we go forward. We'll be back with more after this. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board, and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. I have one more question for myself uh, to both of you. Let's say that it's summer 2022 um, and everyone's impressed and 
including you two. And even Democrats privately admit that the Republican Party seems to have gotten its act together, uh, and they're fearing just a trouncing in the midterms. In your mind, what had to have happened to give you and others that impression? And uh, let's hear from uh, Ross and then Henry. I think the, as I, well, I think there are two scenarios. One scenario is the economic recovery either disappoints or you get the sort of a sudden uptick in inflation that some economists fear from the scale of stimulus spending. Um, if that if that happens, then Republicans can run against the Democrats on economic stewardship. And that's always the primary place you want to be. Um, and they can say, look, we, we had a, you know, we had the economy was coming back. We handed it to the Democrats. They spent us into back into the 1970s. I think that's the, that I, I don't think that's terribly likely um, from my non-expert reading of the economic data. I think if we're going to get inflation, we're like much on a serious scale, not a modest scale. Um, it's much more likely further on in, in Biden's first term or even his second term. Um, so I think the midterms, it's more likely that Republicans end up fighting the midterms on some combination of Democratic Democratic interest groups are sort of keeping us in a pandemic zone by failing to open schools or sort of slow walking come, the comeback from the pandemic. Um, again, God willing, by next summer that that won't be an issue. But I don't think it's impossible that you could see you know sort of school systems still you know if you get one more one more wave next winter sort of still struggling to reopen but then more importantly what i said earlier that if you have a continuation of the coronavirus era crime wave join to continue trouble at the border join to sort of continue demonstrations of activist power in the democratic party um you know then then I think the Republicans have something to run against. And it's all, but it's about that combination. It's not enough. Like today, a, a Democratic Congresswoman, you know, referred to, um, you know, instead of mothers, referred to like people who get pregnant or something, right? So, you know, there, there's this sort of jargon like Latinx that Democrats use that I think is alienating to a lot of voters. But it's only a big political problem for the Democrats if it's combined with some sense that the Democrats are engaging in this jargon while they can't govern our cities and crime rates are rising. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, the real danger zone. So it's in the pudding kind of scenario. And yeah. then Henry, take us home and we'll go to Q&A. Yeah, no, that, uh, yeah, I would summarize. I basically agree with Ross, although I think, you know, we're not talking about 15% inflation next year, but I think we've had a very substantial chance of a real 5%. I say real 5% because the government will try and tamp it down by using things like personal consumption expenditures or core inflation rates that exclude food and energy. But, you know, the real inflation rate, meaning what real families face, will be higher than that. I think the message will be if, if, if we're sitting here in July and Democrats say we're going to lose the midterms and they really don't think they have a shot, I think it'll be um, crime, country, and competence, uh, that they will have mismanaged the economy, they will have mismanaged the border, and we will have a recurrence of crime. And you know, for me, the event that I'm looking to is uh, what happens if a jury doesn't find all three of the people who are with Derek Chauvin guilty of the highest possible crime in the trial that will start in Minneapolis in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, the evidence against Chauvin was pretty much really clear. The evidence against these other guys is not going to be so clear cut. They didn't have their knee on you know, his face, you know, on, on, on Lloyd's neck. They were around, you know, 
it's entirely possible that these guys get don't get convicted. And what happens if that sets off another round of riots? And then there's, I get the the fact is the great underreported story in America right now is the continuing high levels of crime compared to what we've seen in the last 25 years in most of our American cities. That could continue and it could spiral out of control. So to summarize, if we're in July and the Democrats have given up the ghost, it's crime, country, and competence. They will have mismanaged the three things that matter most to people. Mm. All right. Thank you both. I'm going to turn it to our viewers. With moderates on both sides of the aisle being marginalized, do you two foresee any credible future for a third party? Who wants to take that one first? You know, there's always a problem with American third parties. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons they don't come up is because we actually have a multi-party system in this country right now because of our primaries. In every other country of the world, the ins can block out the outs by selecting the nominees uh, through uh, party insider control uh, processes and the outsiders have to form new parties. In the United States, you fight these battles between parties and party primaries every year. And so consequently, as long as you think you've got a shot for significant influence, you're not going to make a third party. The moderates may be unhappy, but they have to really feel utterly disenfranchised and then make common ground with moderates who are disenfranchised with another set of people over another set of issues. So uh, our, until we eliminate the political primary system uh, and go to a, a insider control nomination system, I think third parties in America are going to remain as rare as they've been in the last century. Yeah, I mostly agree with Henry. I think you, you can see both Trump's capture of the Republican nomination and the Bernie Sanders insurgency in the Democratic Party as examples of forces that in a different era, the era of Ross Perot or George Wallace um, would have been third parties working outside the party system, but in an era of weaker parties, as Henry says, they they work inside it, and that's that's what I would expect to happen. With the one caveat that I do think, if Trump is the Republican nominee in twenty twenty four, for a, a small the small group of Republicans who have really vehemently opposed him, and I'm now I'm thinking basically of Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney above all. Um, there, there might be some pressure uh, from from them, from themselves, mm -hmm. from their donors, from other people to try and sort of create a a non a non Trump conservative faction. And I'm not sure how that would work. But I think if you're trying to imagine a third party, Trump Trump being the Republican nominee in 2024 mm -hmm. is is sort of a precondition. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Who else do you view as the future of the Republican Party? Uh, who would you want to lead the party? So DeSantis has come up. We've, we've thrown a few names around. Um, Henry, what do you think? Yeah, I've been asked the who question for the last decade, and I always turn it around to the why, you know, which is that the who in American politics changes rapidly. If we were sitting here in 2012, uh, everyone would be talking about Chris Christie. By 2014, Chris Christie is uh, considered to be uh, dead in the water because of uh, Bridgegate. Four months ago, everyone would be talking about Christy Noem, then she commits an own goal by uh, going against the party base on transgender. You just don't know who is going to have the skill and the chops to navigate this over a three-year period. So the what that I think represents the center of Republican Party opinion is somebody 
who um, uh, is willing to use government power and domestically in limited but effective ways to help people who need it, whether they're racial minorities or whether they're struggling blue collar workers. Uh, somebody who has a realistic foreign policy that doesn't engage in imperial overstretch, but concentrates on the real foe that we have, which is the Chinese, Russian, Iranian axis that is emerging. And on social issues, one that speaks about social issues in a non-theological way and focuses more on family and community. You find somebody who can be an articulate advocate for that, and that unites the party while being attractive to some of the people who supported Biden or third party candidates. Ross, do you have the list of criteria or do you have someone in mind? I think, I mean, I, I generally agree with Henry's list of criteria. I think there's, you know, a collection of people, men in the Senate, um, who I think would agree with Henry's analysis in, in broad strokes and are trying in different ways to sort of experiment in that direction. And not coincidentally, they're all men who think they're going to be president of the United States someday, um, meaning Marco Rubio, uh, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, whose I think position has taken a bit of a hit um, since, since January 6th, but who is still sort of trying to be a populist politician issuing proposals to break up Silicon Valley giants and so on. Um, and so so that I think that cluster of like three or four sort of would be populist senators is where the most interesting action is. Um, and then you have a figure like Tim Scott, who's sort of less of a policy entrepreneur and more of sort of a you know, public embodiment, I think, of what a sort of, you know, business friendly African-American politician from South Carolina, I think is sort of an embodiment of what whatever remains of the party establishment would like the future of the party to be. And I think he's pulled ahead of his of, of Nikki Haley as sort of the figure who occupies that that zone right now. Um, but I think DeSantis, I think being not being in Washington, D.C. is always a pretty big advantage, you know, there could be a sort of Chris Christie style meltdown for DeSantis in his future. But right now he's clearly in the strongest position of any governor to be a sort of post-Trump leader for the party. I would agree with both of those. Uh, I would agree with all of that analysis. Okay, we'll see if we can fit one or two more questions. Uh, we brought up the tech issues. So Ross, should former President Trump be reinstated by Facebook ever? Do Republican Party members now see themselves as willing captives of a right-wing outlier movement rather than as a genuine, credible opposition party? Oh, those are two very different questions. Let's, <laughs> they were clumped as well. Uh, but go ahead and take the, take the first one, uh, if you would. I mean, I, I think I, I'm of two minds. I think that Trump morally deserves to be banned from social media platforms. Um, at the same time, I think it's, it's a really bad, it's a really bad situation for a democratic society to have a few companies with this kind of power over sort of public speech to the point where they can remove the effective leader of the political opposition. And you'll you'll notice that political leaders who don't like Donald Trump very much, especially in Western Europe, were very quick to be critical of the Silicon Valley decisions, I think, because they they see this as an issue of like who actually who actually has the power. So I, I guess I'd like to live in a world where a company like Facebook could ban Trump and it wouldn't matter because Facebook doesn't have that, that kind of that that kind of power, which is a little bit of a cop out. But that's that's, that's a good point. that would be my answer. But we don't live in that world. And that's why, you know, I oppose Trump. Um, you know, January 6th was a red line for me. I'm not going to ever vote for him again. 
uh, under any circumstances. Uh, but um, I think we have to be in a democracy. And in a democracy, you have to let odious figures speak to uh, the public. And it looks like actually that's our time. Thank you both so very much. Uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, so thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Ross and Henry for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Ann Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, which includes our regular Northwest Newsmakers live event series hosted by Monica, go to CrossCut.com donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.